Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. And welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. Brad, how's everything going, my man? Things are going all right. Last night, I watched the documentary, The Social Dilemma, and um, it is pretty disconcerting. So I'm looking forward to using today as a little bit of a group therapy session for us and the listeners out there on social media, which is our topic. Yeah. So I watched it last night too, and I know it's been making its rounds. And um, it's, you know, it's also a topic that we've thought about and discussed to a degree for a while um, here now on the role of social media and to give people some backstory, like Brad, you and I have this conversation a lot on are we contributing because <laughs> we use social media to a large degree or um, are we not part of the problem? So I'm looking forward to kind of unpacking some of that in our own personal realm and then also on the broader context, which the documentary brought up on what are the kind of ramifications of our society going this way? And hopefully, maybe what can we do about it? So for those that um, are not yet aware, The Social Dilemma is a Netflix documentary. It features, among many others, Tristan Harris, who was uh, in charge of ethical design at Google and left the company somewhat as a whistleblower, saying that they don't really care about collective community health or individual mental health. And he started uh, a little bit of what you'd call a movement of ex-engineers, designers, and management leaving companies like Google, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Instagram, and on and on, all in the name of their moral values that they feel technology is doing more harm than good, again, on two levels, for what I'm calling community health, political tribalism, democracy, and then on the other level, at the individual brain and mental health. So that is the context. Let's dive in, Steve, right where you suggested. About 55 minutes through the documentary... I texted Steve and I said, should we just shut down all of our Facebook activity? Steve, how did you respond? (laughs) Well, I could go through the text and pull it up. But I think what I said was basically, um, I don't think we should because whether we're not on Facebook or not, that's not the issue. and. If we are on Facebook, it's our job to provide almost a shining light of good, validated information um, that is helpful and isn't there for the clicks, right? It's almost like, I, I think the problem with Facebook is largely, which is explained in the movie, which we'll get to later, is this kind of down the rabbit hole, putting you in a polarized spot. And our our world that we're trying to create is one that is kind of the opposite of that and that it's embracing kind of who you are, understanding vulnerability, you know, um, looking at things that actually work and aren't shortcuts to get, you know, to the next level. 
um, as kind of the no BS performance and well-being is what we kind of espouse. So, but it is, I understand the, like the comment because you see these things. It's like, how can we be contributing to this in any way? That's what I was feeling last night. I'm still feeling, I mean, like I said, group therapy, who knows if we're going to end this podcast and shut down the growth equations, Facebook account. Um, so, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it, It's interesting. Cause it's, it's on one sense. Do you, do you just kind of turn it off and ignore and be like, I'm not personally going to do this or contribute? Or is the other sense, do you meet people where they are, which is on Facebook, social, Twitter, et cetera, and try to get them to see the world in a slightly better, happier light? Yeah. So let's, let's, and it's interesting because you mentioned Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. So, the the movie the social dilemma the documentary really verified a lot of what steve and i have written about with the concerns of social media and each platform has its own kind of unique downside so facebook's downside is very much this spreading of conspiracy theories or fake news stories because the more provocative and outrageous something seems, the more people click on it. Even if you disagree with it, you know, it's like, oh, you still want to see what the conspiracy theory is. Uh, that is just the way that the human brain works. We see an explosion and we want to go look at it, even if from a distance, and clicking lets you do that. So that to me is Facebook's biggest problem. I'd say Twitter's biggest problem, I'm just going to do a quick rundown here is that Twitter rewards anger. So on Twitter, you get a lot of people just yelling past each other, which can lead to a sense that everybody is completely polarized. Um, the, the podcast host and neuroscientist slash philosopher Sam Harris put it really well, which is you can tweet something and get 4,000 comments of anger and very quickly convince yourself that, oh my gosh, we're screwed. When in fact, there are 330 million Americans and 7 billion people in the world, 4,000 comments is just statistical noise. And then Instagram, I'd say the biggest problem there is self-esteem. So people literally being judged on how they appear, how their house appears, how whatever they're taking a picture of appears, um, particularly dangerous for young people that are still developing and already insecure simply because they're in middle school. Um, so that's my quick rundown. Steve, please fill in any holes. Sure. Yeah, I think on the Instagram, I think the big thing is the self-esteem is being affected um, via that comparison. And it's really a comparison to a uh, false reality or a facade. And I think that we're, the human brain is equipped to handle that in the real world, but not in the online world. It, it's hard to distinguish. And it almost Instagram's biggest issue is that it, when you watch reality TV, for example, or you watch, you know, wrestling, WWF, WWE, whatever it is, in the back of your head, you know it's fake, right? You have this appreciation for it. When you watch Instagram, because it's one level closer, right? There's not this mediator between TV company, et cetera. It feels like when you're watching a video or looking at a picture, you're seeing something that that person took. Same so that thing with Facebook for news. 
I mean, yeah. that, that's a great comparison. You know, you could see something on Facebook and instead of thinking it's WWF, a lot of people, millions, sadly, think the conspiracy theory is real because it's got this social support of people commenting on it. And it's on this platform called Facebook that is supposed to represent the real world. So exactly. And I think, I think that is key to this whole thing is that it is real people and often real people you quote unquote know. Um, on Facebook that are sharing this these things, so you you take it as um, as a conversation. And if if I we can you know transition over to Facebook a little bit, the way I kind of see it is we all kind of have crazy ideas and all that stuff, and sometimes believe things that maybe we shouldn't. But in the past, you you got checked. You had those conversations with close friends or family members who were willing to step in and be like, hey, man, that's a little out there, you know? And you got you got checked in real life. Like, I remember growing up in the high school and college, like, we'd have these conversations sometimes on crazy things, on a lot of times on runs with my high school and college teammates. And you'd, you'd kind of get checked. You'd be put in your place. And it's almost like you test an idea and you find out, oh, man, that's wrong. That That isn't socially approved. But in the way Facebook works is it reinforces our belief, whatever it is, because you're going to gravitate and find people who will give you likes, et cetera, et cetera. So it's no longer a check on your, your, you know, beliefs or maybe your, some of your ideas. It's become a reinforcer. And I think that's where the downfall is. Yeah. A reinforcer and a reinforcer without any quality control. And and that's to me that's the huge problem is that with Facebook in particular is that Facebook brands itself as just a a marketplace for ideas. But they're not. They're a publisher, particularly because they have an algorithm. It's not like on Facebook you just see the latest post um that that one of your quote unquote Facebook friends made. You see posts driven by advertisers. You see posts driven by their algorithm, which has the sole goal of making you pay attention. Well, that's not a marketplace of ideas. That is a publisher selling your attention to advertisers. Now, what Facebook says is that quality control is impossible because we've got, I don't know, a billion people on the platform. So we're just going to do the best that we can. Now, again, to quote Sam Harris, that's like saying McDonald's, well, we sell a billion hamburgers, and that's way too many to do quality control on. So if 10% have E. coli, we're doing the best that we can. How can you expect us to check all these hamburgers? And that's where I get really upset about Facebook in particular, uh, because it's not, it's not as benign as something like Twitter, where there are a lot of ways that you can mute certain topics. Or if you just spend five minutes in your settings, you can only see what the people that you actively choose to follow are saying. Period. Yeah, it's it's interesting, the difference there. And it's the difference that you... you know, I, I think you explained this at the beginning, but Twitter is more of a... Um, it puts you into these silos if... 
you know, you're not aware of it, but largely tries to put you into these silos where you almost your ideas reverberate and you get this kind of skewed view of the world. Um, Facebook, which I think in the social dilemma, they did a great job of showing with, for instance, the flat earther kind of conspiracy, um, which is also tied to YouTube, which we haven't talked about, but like Facebook helps send us down these, these rabbit holes of deeper or like more, um, conspiracy based, more like locked in thinking, and then reinforces that with ads that send you in that same direction or put you in that same category. And that's why, you know, I think this is important to understand because a lot of times we see beliefs in conspiracy, right? We see, as I said, the flat earthers, we see a lot of the coronavirus conspiracies with like 5G and things like that. And we step back and we're like, how in the world do these people fall for these things? It must be an issue of intelligence. And it's, it's not necessarily. It's an issue of this is all they're watching. And the best comparison I can make it is it is literally like if you are in North Korea and you turn on the TV and it says Kim Jong-un, you know, is the best golfer in the world. And today he shot a, a 50 or whatever. Then if that's all you see over time, then you bet you're going to believe that Kim Jong-un is the best golfer in the world. Yeah, it's it, it, the echo chamber effect is real. I do, and this isn't just sounding like an advertisement for um, for Twitter is the, the, the one with the most positive upside, or at least I should say potential for positive upside. There, you can be aware at the get-go and follow accounts of people or institutions that you, in good faith, disagree with. So that, Facebook that is, doesn't let you do that. Like the algorithm but, is going to know what you like. And if you like eating candy, it's going to keep feeding you candy because all it gives a crap about is your attention. So, yeah, that is true. But Twitter is like, I'm going to push back on that and just say that might be a timing of what they were initially developed for. So Facebook, the reason that it pushes you down these rabbit holes is pretty simply because it started off as, as this friends idea, right? So you just accept all these friends and you have all these people in there. And then Facebook evolved in the sense that now it is just going to show you a small slice of those friends, right? It's going to show you a small slice of those friends who, you know, like your stuff, blah, 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 grab your attention, et cetera, et cetera. We're not at that point with Twitter because it largely shows you most of who you follow, but it can still go down that path of, okay, and it has to a degree in terms of the timeline for Twitter used to be, um, you know, by time, and now it's by algorithm to a degree. So, it, it can go down that same path of even if you're choosing to follow, right, and more selective on it, like, you can still be pushed in a certain direction or prodded in a certain direction. It's not to the level I think Facebook is now, but I think the thing we have to be aware of is where, where are we going five, 10 years down the line? Because the same could be said of, of YouTube. I don't know, 10 years, 10 years ago was like a wonderful place for creativity, right? Mm -hmm. Creative expression, communities, all that stuff. 
And then in the recent years, because conspiracy theories do really well and certain ideas do really well, now it becomes not just like vloggers and blah, blah, blah. It is how do we get hooked on people's attention, which is this is the way. So the algorithm pushes you towards this direction that is now completely unhealthy and, um, you know, bring, bring about some almost crazy cult-like uh, behavior and thinking. So before I go super vulnerable on Steve and I's business model um, and also super negative, I do want to hold in the parking lot the thought that Steve and I met on Twitter. And now we are co-founders of The Growth Equation. We've written two books together. We're best of friends. Um, I was going to be in Steve's wedding if it wasn't for COVID. So there's good. And we'll get back to that. But my question for you, Steve, is this. If we weren't... I don't know what we're called. Quote, unquote, public intellectuals, thought leaders, authors trying to get ideas out and ultimately sell books, because that's how we make a living. Would you be on these platforms? That's a good question. Um, I don't think I'd be on as many. I think I would be even more selective. I think, again, I probably like you tend to like Twitter more than the others. Um, A, because you do have that power of selectivity right now, I think to a higher degree. And it's a way to keep informed and connected on things that matter. So a lot of the people that I follow, for instance, are do post a lot of good research, right? In the areas that I'm interested in. So that is one way that I keep up to date with it. So I think that would be, I think on Facebook, I'd probably be completely off um, or trim it down to where it is literally just Brad Stahlberg level, just purely, purely self-promotion once a month. No, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, it's like Facebook, again, has value in the sense that a lot of this sounds bad, but a lot of like older parent age, like people that I'm family with are on it. And that might be the only way that I stay up or keep connected with them. Right. And that sounds strange. And that probably is a indicator that I need to do more outside of that. But it is what it is. Right. So I, I, I think that like that was the original value of Facebook was like, you know, we go all the way back. It was basically started as college. You know, I remember it started and it was like keep track of friends in college. Um, so but I think I would be off Facebook. I think I would have no no need for Instagram whatsoever. And YouTube, I have no idea how to do anything on there except occasionally post a podcast and a recording. So I would be off that. And TikTok, I don't dance and whatever else goes on in TikTok. So that's the one I probably should be on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Posting posting videos of dancing and deadlifting. Brad Stolberg, Dancing, Deadlifting, TikTok. Heard it here first. Let's, let's talk about our review of the week. Oh, what a great time for the review of the week. You just, know, so, just so they remember that this podcast is actually normally, maybe, hopefully, of quality. 
and we're we're trying to keep things light, uh, doing the best that we can. So the review of the week this week comes from Westy Lynn. And again, the review of the week segment is we feature one of the top five-star ratings and reviews from the past week because these ratings and reviews help the podcast reach a larger audience. So Westy writes, Steve, Brad, and guests make your crazy feel normal. (laughs) Ironic timing, Westy. The passion paradox changed my life by helping me better understand myself. I love listening to superstar guests share successes, challenges, transitions, insights, and authentic, relatable conversations. Well, thank you, Westy. My hunch is that you are referring to our recent conversations with Shalane Flanagan and Amelia Boone, where we talked about everything from parenting to disordered eating to depression to trying to be the best in the world at what you do. Um, and we so appreciate you guys listening and our wonderful guest for being so raw and vulnerable with us on the show. All right. Now back, hopefully that gives us a clean slate to dive back into social media and the social dilemma. Um, so I, I, you know, before we took our tangent, I'm not sure where we were going, but I, I think another thing that is really interesting on this whole social media uh, thing is how much data and understanding these companies have collected on us. And it's something that we're not really aware of to like, we know uh, superficially almost like, Oh yeah, everybody has data on the internet, but like to the degree that it might impact our life and impact our future life. You know, the, the thing that I, took away and one of the highlights from this movie or documentary was just that they have developed ways to you know predict moods and behavior and model what kind of emotional triggers will will poke and prod you to uh, watch another video or make another click and i think that is almost astounding that you can just look at behavior on let's say facebook and what you're posting and how you're interacting and potentially predict things like depression or you know sadness or whatever have you and again we don't know the data on the accuracy and all that stuff but it 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 struck me as man this could be something that is used for so much good but instead we're using it to like push people down the rabbit hole of uh, 9-11 truthers. Yeah, and I think a big part of where I ended up coming out after watching the documentary was that in order for social media to have the potential to do good and to be quite frank, for me to want to have any part in it, it would have to be highly regulated. We fly millions of people across the world every day. We regulate that industry. The phone companies could have more data on us than even the social media companies. We regulate that industry. So these industries that have the potential for massive upside, but also massive harm tend to be heavily regulated. And I think what we're seeing with social media is a complete and utter lack of regulation that is leading to these um, 
platforms being hijacked for nefarious purposes. Yeah, you know, and I think that's a good point. And I think that a lot of times regulation has this uh, negative connotation around it, especially for a certain population of the U.S., because it said like, oh, you're going to interfere with our life. But this, the internet started as this kind of massive experiment and almost no regulation. And uh, unfortunately, what we find is when you start taking the extreme views of anything or extreme positions on like, oh, no regulation or anything, it, it, it often doesn't work. The happy medium is somewhere in the middle. Right, you I can't think, put you can't put cocaine in Oreos and then sell Oreos. No one complains that Oreos are regulated. Right, and I think it's like this reframing of regulations are necessary. And I'll give you the, the example here. You just brought up food. Well, look at food safety versus supplement safety and contamination. Right, supplements are still regulated, but not to the degree of food. But we have so many, and you can tell this in the athletic world, so many athletes who have tested positive for banned substances based on contaminated supplements. And I think I think that's an example of like, again, supplements are regulated to a degree, but not as much as food. So you have this, where does social media fall? And right now we're on the far end of the spectrum, even more so than the supplement industry of basically uh, zero regulation, especially on the data. And we need to course correct that and understand that that is for our, our own good. It's not like government interference. It's protecting uh, ourselves and ourselves for the future. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is a really good way to look at it. Um, that like the regulations are actually freedom and it's freedom from getting sucked down these rabbit holes and ultimately um, losing our democracy or, or if you're in a democratic country, losing democracy, which requires the free flow of truth. Right. It's it. And I, I love that freedom idea because bring it back to food. When we go on Yelp or Google or whatever, we have the freedom to just scroll through and basically feel fine that we're going to eat anywhere, right? We're not worried to be about E. coli or to a degree or some other massive contaminant because we, we feel pretty good that, you know, whether we go to McDonald's or Roos Chris, like the food is going to be edible and pretty dang safe. Now, is it perfect? No, but it's going to be pretty dang safe so like we can judge based on taste we have the freedom to judge based on taste and reviews and what we're we want and i think that's how we have to look at it in social media is we we want the freedom to consume social media without without having to like being sucked down a rabbit hole of somewhere that we don't really want to go but that these companies are essentially you know, manipulating us and our brains to like push us down this rabbit hole that maybe wasn't our original intentions or beliefs. Yeah. And I think it's, I think the way that you do this, and I'm sure smarter people in this area than you and I have, have thrown out similar, if not the exact same thinking is that you got to treat it like a phone, right? So you pay a phone bill for how much you use it. So in a way it's a quote unquote subscription based model. And you don't have advertisers on the phone saying, 
hey, like buy this. Uh, because if you did, then the phone companies would have an incentive to do everything possible to keep you on the phone. So for social media to be successful, I really believe that you've got to take the advertising completely out of the business. Um, have a subscription-based model so that these companies can make revenue. And then people will decide, much like with a telephone, if it's worth it to use and how much of it to use. Because if it doesn't go in that direction soon, I'm completely off of everything with the exception of Twitter, which I'll end up probably being completely off of anyways. As an author and a thinker, I would so much rather have people that want to hear information from us subscribe to an email newsletter, which we have full control over. And if they have a problem with it, they unsubscribe. And um, and then to get information, I would so much rather subscribe to newsletters of people who I respect and check a few publications a couple times a week. Yeah. No, I mean, you're, you're talking about living like it's the early 2000s. <laughs> Yeah, and maybe that's it, man. I mean, that's a really that's another more elegant way to say it. You know, and it, it again, I I think that that has value and that has um, you know, a lot of importance there. And I think, you know, if I look back, it, it's hard because like memory biases us and blinds us. But the way we consume information was slightly different. And I think one of the reasons we've really pushed our newsletter beyond, you know, just for, you know, because we have it um, and it's a great platform is because of that is it allows us to connect with people on their level and give them information. We think that it's quality, but if they don't like it, you know, we're not creating a ne- negative loop there. Um, there's no, you know, marketing scheme behind it is Brad and I writing a weekly newsletter. Right. And and when there is a marketing scheme, it's a monthly sponsor that Steve and I are selecting based on whether or not we agree with what they're trying to do. And again, if we don't, we simply say no, because it's not like we're getting huge bucks for our newsletter. Um, and I, I really do think that that is the way of my future just learning more about social media, experiencing personally, and maybe we'll get now to some of the individual detriments, also experiencing some of the individual downsides of social media, which have led me not to be on Instagram, to basically not be on Facebook. Um, I, 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 Yeah, that's just where I see myself going. So quick plug, and I say this um, not to be a shameless self-promoter, but in all seriousness... If you don't yet subscribe to the newsletter, um, please do. You can go to our website, www.thegrowtheq.com and subscribe there. And it's the place where Steve and I have the most room to really be thoughtful. And it's the place that Steve and I will be five years from now if the social media ship doesn't doesn't change course. Yeah, that's uh, assuming that uh, email doesn't turn dastardly as well, um, which is a possibility. <laughs> so you just never know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think on the on the personal level, let's let's dive into this a little bit. And I think one of the things that really concerns me on the personal level, and maybe this is just me getting older, but is the fact that we've kind of created this world where our sense of connection comes almost entirely from 
the online world, right? Um, we still, of course, have face-to-face connection and all that stuff, but it's increasingly being almost to a degree secondary, right? You can just go to any restaurant. Well, maybe not during COVID times, but before you could go to any restaurant and look around and see how many people were on their phones versus how many people were in kind of a deep conversation, right? And I think that is something that is really concerning for me. And I see it to a higher degree, I think, because I have time that is protected from my phone and time that I see young people interact that is protected from their phone. And it reminds me of how valuable that interaction and connection is. And what I mean by that time that is protected is, again, pre-COVID days, when my athletes that I coach um, on the cross-country team would run, none of them run with their phones. And you'd see the like depth of conversation that sometimes you know, would come out during an hour-long run when you're just kind of killing time and talking. And, you know, that whenever that occurs and occurs pretty frequently, like it's always a reminder to me that like, oh, man, like this is what the world of connection is like without our phones. This is fantastic. And I think that as an individual, it's so important to protect time for that and that we do have control of. And I use the word protect because... Given digital connection is so overwhelmingly everywhere, you really do have to be intentional about saying, hey, I'm going to have X amount of time each day, each week, each month when I'm with people I care about in person with no devices around so I can really connect to them. And my strong hypothesis is that what ends up happening for you is you end up wanting to do that instead of spending time on your digital device. And it becomes this virtuous cycle because connecting in person feels so much better than connecting digitally. Obviously, COVID are weird times, but a long phone conversation or FaceTime with someone that you care about when you don't have nine browsers open at the same time is going to leave you feeling better than an hour scrolling whatever social media platform that you're on. Um. I At least that's certainly been my experience with the people I coach, with my community. Uh, you know, in an upcoming writing project, I, I have the line in there talking about this very point that it's so much better to be a celebrity in your actual physical neighborhood than to be a celebrity on the internet. Yeah, and I've I've heard you say that line before, and I absolutely love it. And I think that that's one of the big, you know, issues there is that it, it's it's easy to think about and you know say that it's harder sometimes to um, put into action and what I mean by that is you just mentioned there that it feels better when you have actual human to human connection right it doesn't feel that good when you sit there and you scroll for you know an hour or whatever on on whatever social media. But that requires like making that connection there between our first interpreting those feelings, making that connection to social, to where its source came from, and then doing something about it. And I think increasingly our ability to read our body and to understand that um, is becoming, again, increasingly more poor. 
we'll say. So I think it's how do we how do we gain that awareness to be able to recognize those feeling sensations, recognize where they're coming from in that connection there, and then do something about it in a world that takes awareness away from us and demands that attention that should be going to recognizing that stuff and takes that attention down the rabbit hole of whatever social media is. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a muscle. I mean, in-person connection is a different muscle than the more superficial connection on, on social media. Uh, and on that note, there, there is some research on the, when, in, in, under what circumstances social media can be positive. And the research there is very clear that it is when it is used as a quote unquote way station for people to meet there, but then take the relationship offline. Or if you already have a relationship with someone or a group, if it's a scheduling or planning tool or a way to stay connected in between in-person physical gatherings, social media is then associated with positive mental health. If social media is used for just about anything else, the repercussions of it are almost always negative. And it's sad. You don't hear this often because, um, again, this is getting like pretty vulnerable into the business model. A lot of people, these social psychologists with huge social media followings, are often the first to tweet like a positive study about social media. Um, whether it's intentional or not, my sense is that's because they know that they've got 400,000 people following them on social media. Uh, social media is not really great. Like if you're on it, you're on it. And as Steve said, we're going to do everything we can to provide you with positive content. But using social media to scroll is is like there's just no strong evidence that that is associated with any positive outcome. Yeah, it's it's you know, and I think you hit the nail on the head with the the concept of scrolling. There, I think it's being intentional on what you're trying to get out of it. And I think far too often we're not intentional and we just kind of default to it. I call it the, the, the standing on, if you're standing in a line, right, which may not occur as much anymore, but standing in line to, you know, get a, get some food or go buy a movie ticket or whatever have you, what do you tend to do in that moment? Well, in the past, maybe 15 years ago, you'd talk to your friend or like, you know, sit there and think in your head or whatever have you. Now, like almost instantly, the reaction to any moment that we have alone is to reach down in our pocket, pull out our phone and then start scrolling, which again is very unintentional use of it. And I'm I'm as guilty of that as anybody else. So I think it's really asking that question and figuring out how, if I'm going to use social media, what am I trying to get out of it? And then how am I going to be intentional about it, knowing that, as in this documentary we're discussing, the algorithms are only going to get better. They're, you know, only going to, you know, become more sophisticated and have more data on you unless intervention or regulation occurs. And that you're fighting this losing battle to a degree. How are you going to protect yourself and your time and your intention around that? Yeah, 
And, and that's, that's digital hygiene, I guess. So, I mean, if you're asking me, I don't know if you're asking rhetorically or if you're asking me for how I do it, my answer is I'm only on one platform actively, which is Twitter. I post a few times a day when I have something that I feel like is worth sharing. Maybe I scroll for 10 minutes twice a day. And generally, that quote-unquote scrolling is um, checking accounts that I follow. So it's like going to direct pages or like I only follow 250 people. I, I, I have a very ruthless leash. You know, I, I, I give someone like a couple, oh, that was stupid. I don't really care about the hamburger that you ate for lunch. But if my timeline gets cluttered, I just hit unfollow. Um, and for me, that's it. Like I, I, not, not because I have this incredible willpower not to use it. <laughs> the opposite, because I've set regulations for myself. Like I'm not on any other platforms because it would consume too much of my time. And on Twitter itself, I have to be super intentional around saying like, hey, this is when I'm going to check this is for how long. Otherwise, I know I can go down that rabbit hole. And I took it off my phone. Yeah, I think the taking off your phone is key. And I think for me... Um, Have you done that yet, Steve, taking it off your phone? Oh, yeah. I've had it off my phone for a while. I mean, so what I do now... So it's it's off my phone. The thing that I do a lot of times or now is I um, disable... Because you can't delete it the Safari app, the internet browsing app on my phone so that I can't use it. The only times I try and keep that on my phone now is during times when I um, need it, which a lot of times is in the coaching uh, world and, you know, other times like that. But I try and often fail, but I try and be very intentional on on that. Um, again, to protect kind of my space. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what it's come down to. And I do think, you know, really, Steve and I have a slightly different uh, approach here. Steve is on more platforms than me. He might, you know, his brainstem might just not be as overreactive to social validation as mine. uh, Or he just has the patience of a saint. (laughs) But for me, it's simple. It's like I can be on one of these. It's almost like eating junk food. And I have a very similar relationship with junk food. So I, for health reasons, for you know, emerging ethical reasons, I could go on and on. I try not to eat much meat. But my thing is like, I'm going to have fried chicken once a month. Uh, and that's all I can do. Because if I were to say, I'm going to eat whatever meat's out there, I would be eating cheeseburgers from McDonald's every day. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You know, I used to rely on the willpower a lot, but I've come to see that that fails. And I think that's just a notion of willpower is something that I relied on a lot in my younger days as an athlete, for example, like I didn't have any fast food for like 10 years, um, simply out of willpower in the, in the sense that I decided I'm not going to have any fast food. So I think initially I approached social media in the same way because I was like, Oh, I have a lot of willpower. Like I'm very stubborn. Um, when it comes to these things, I'll be able to do this and it doesn't work. So I think getting rid of that, like, idea that, oh, I'm tough. I have a lot of mental strength. I've got a lot of willpower. As I said, the the algorithms get better. They're going to hijack your brain. You know, two years ago, I spoke at the uh, MIT Sloan uh, Sports Analytics Conference on a topic. Um, 
and we'll try and put the video in the show notes on this topic, which is social media and the relationship to athletic performance. And on that panel was someone who worked again in the social media world and kind of outlined exactly how things work in terms of hooking you, uh, getting that dopamine hit, et cetera, et cetera. And it really kind of brought to light that we're fighting this battle that isn't a willpower battle. It's a brain hijack battle. So how, how do we fight back? Well, kind of the things that Brad talked about. The only thing I would add is I'm on more social media, but I try and I try to be very intentional on almost all of them. And the only one I really fail at, I think, is Twitter every once in a while on the scrolling and stuff like that. But to do that, I schedule most of my Twitter posts. I schedule all of my Instagram posts. Uh, Facebook I generally only post our um, our newsletter on there and then maybe a couple things in addition to that, but try not to engage. I have a reminder in front of my computer that says, don't engage the trolls, which is basically, a, <laughs> that sounds bad, but it's my, my reminder that says, you know what, we're all have our brains hijacked here. So if people are coming back at you, whether it's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, social media. Um, the reason they're doing that is most likely just to get some likes and validation and whatever off my platform. And that's fine. I understand that from a psychological standpoint, but like I can't fall down that rabbit hole or else I'll be sucked into the world of social media and judgment and all those things. And, you know, the final thing I'll say on, I am not a saint with patience. I mess this up all the time, but I think the difference is, or one difference, Brad, between you and I is, uh, for better or worse, I've been in, and it wasn't the social media spotlight, but I've been in some sort of spotlight since I was, you know, 15 years old and ran really fast. Um, back then it was message boards, right? In the running world. Dude, and- I started for my middle school basketball team. What are you talking about? <laughs> I was a power forward at five foot ten. <laughs> there you go. But but like for better or worse, that is like I had to quickly learn the lesson and sometimes not very well on like social validation and validation in the in the online world versus validation in the real world and what matters. Yeah. So Yeah, I think that's good. I think um you know, maybe just some recommendations, very tactical things for listeners that because we covered a lot of ground and we were a little bit more philosophical today than than practical, which I think is fine. Uh, so here's what I'd say as a recap. If you're going to use social media, do what you can to be very intentional about what platforms you use, why you use it and how you use it. If you notice yourself slipping into a political tribalism type usage or a social validation type usage or a whenever I'm bored, this is my pacifier type usage, don't think that you're weak. Just remind yourself that your brain's being hijacked by behavioral scientists that have gazillions of dollars at their companies to do it and take it off your phone or get off the platform or give yourself one month without it. And think of it like overcoming any other addiction, right? It's really freaking hard. And you shouldn't be like... You, the, the key is self-compassion and overcoming an addiction and realizing this substance was designed to addict me and it's not going to be easy and that doesn't mean I'm weak. The second thing I'd say for getting information 
is if you can have a couple of trusted sources that bring different perspectives that you might not agree with, but are there in good faith, read them. Easiest example for today's political universe, if you live in America, skim the New York Times and skim the Wall Street Journal. And if you can stomach it, if you're a Republican, read the op-ed page on the New York Times. If you're a liberal, read the op-ed page on the Wall Street Journal. That's going to get you so much farther than Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Um, so those would really be my my kind of closing recommendations. It's what I try to practice. I, as Steve pointed out, neither of us are perfect. If we shoot 80%, that's great. Um, but I, I think that's the path forward at the individual level. And then only time will tell. And subscribe to our newsletter so that <laughs> if we all quit social media, it could be like the reverse... You know, like cults also spread a lot on social media, and we could be like the reverse cult, like all 10,000 growth equation community members on the same day quit social media and we just have our newsletter. And that would be a cult that I could live with. All right. You heard it here fo- first, folks. Brad is trying to start a growth equation cult, um, <laughs> a productive cult. Um, You know, I I would agree. I think the only thing that I would add, and maybe to bring some context, is that you really have to live this stuff and not make it, you know, just kind of checking the box for it. Like, don't be like, oh, of course I watch or I read the Wall Street Journal and I read the New York Times. Like, look at me. I'm, I'm informed on both sides. Brad and I will literally text each other things that counter to maybe other ideas we've had you know just in the past two weeks we've texted each other other podcasts to listen that run counter to views that that brad and i uh typically uh ascribe to because they were people who were presenting it in a interesting way had research and science behind it and presented her view you know it, so we could understand it in that that way and i think it's important to have real life people in your life besides just who you follow who can bring you those views to understand other people because social media is so pushing us towards this siloed uh, existence where we we don't really understand the rest of the world and having these conversations, you know. And my my cross country team, which is a very diverse group, one of the best things we had was on this whole kind of racial issue. This is a real conversation of you know white people, African Americans, Hispanics, etc., all on the team, like becoming vulnerable and having that conversation and just. Not even expressing views, just saying, "Here are my exper- real life experiences." Yeah, I think it's a it's a great note to end on, and also a sneak peek at our next episode. Uh, because trying to really practice what we preach, we want to bring that conversation on race to you all in a safe way through this podcast in more than two hundred eighty characters. Um, so we are going to have Jojo McDuffie, who traditionally records the, um, the short kind of quick hits that we put out on the weekend, um, on to talk about race. And Jojo's a black man living in America. Um, if you guys were wondering, Jojo is totally fine. He hasn't been on the show for the last couple of weeks because he and his wife just got hit by the train that is called Twins. 
So we'll also get into that with Jojo. <laughs> um, so yeah, stay tuned for next week. We appreciate all of you. Um, and you know, we really hope that you got something out of this show that you can take home with you, share with your friends, share with your community and continue to navigate these interesting times that we find ourselves in. And give yourself permission to take a break from it all. So step off if you find yourself too far down the rabbit hole. Until next time, enjoy everybody. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation Podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.